Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. To get the Crime Writers on After Show right now, go to Patreon.com slash Partners in Crime Media. I'm Rebecca Lavoie, and this is Crime Writers On. Crime Writers On is the original true crime review podcast that digs into true crime, pop culture, other podcasts. And on this episode, was it a tragic accident at sea or a cold-blooded killing? A California man went to prison for the deaths of his wife and stepson. But is he guilty of murder? We'll talk about season two of the podcast, Lost Hills, Dead in the Water. Joining me to get that done and more is true crime author, TV journalist, host of These Are Their Stories podcast, and former love of my life, my husband, Kevin <laughs> Flynn. Hello, Kevin. Well, thanks for having me back, Rebecca. I know, despite you no longer being the love of my life. You're welcome, Kevin. What happened in the past four days? I'm just saying, you know, earlier when we were taping the other show, you were, now you aren't. That's just how it goes. Also with us is private investigator, certified pet detective, resident cat lady, and author of Dead on Deadline, Laura Bricker. Hello, Laura. Hello, Rebecca. And finally, our captain of all things cynical, author of the City Trilogy of Novels, host of the Strange Arrivals podcast, and our Patreon Deep Dive Book Club podcast host, Toby Ball. Hello, Toby. Hello, Rebecca. Listen, before we get started, I just want to greet our Thursday listeners. Hello, Thursday listeners. We have never had Thursday listeners. Uh, what well, happens? Well, not in about four or five years. Did we used to have podcasts on Thursdays? Yeah, remember we would like record... And immediately turn it around, especially when when Serial came out. Oh, that's right. You know, we used to come out before the weekend. That's right. Yeah. We did. We used to come out as soon as possible, right? We did on Friday. Oh, God. That was back when, like, I used to work all day. We record a podcast at night, and then I would stay up all night editing it. Yeah. What was I thinking? We didn't even have ads back then. You're thinking, you know, Toby's sniffling too much and you absolutely have to stay up and edit them all out. (laughs) That was true. That was true. Now I'm too busy, like, staying up after work to watch General Hospital to do that kind of Catch up on your GH? Oh, my God. GH is so good right now. Listen, I know that none of you watch General Hospital, but I will say to all the listeners out there who are watching, all four of you, you all know, you all know that it is fantastic right now. Thursday is the day before cliffhanger day. We all know that tomorrow is going to be a treat. It always is. Mm. That's how it works. Okay. Love them soap opera Fridays. I think we should just, uh, speaking of soap operas, get right to our review. What do you think? Let's do it. Bird Rock has its own sea cave, a tall chamber with walls that are covered in green algae. It's mysterious and cool, but once you know the story of Fred Rayler, it's impossible to look at the sea cave or any part of this beautiful island the same way again. In 1981, Fred Rayler's family was anchored on their luxury yacht off the coast of Southern California when he convinced his wife and stepson to venture on a dory to nearby Bird Rock. Rayler said the family dog lunged and swamped the boat, sending the trio into the water. And then I pushed the dog up on the, up on the rocks and I was trying to get a handhold so I could pull Vernon and, and Doug out of the water and onto the rock, but I couldn't. 
The deaths of Verna and Doug were ruled accidental, but fueled by gossipy neighbors and suspicious relatives, a second autopsy revealed bruises which could have been blows to the head. Police wanted to know more about the strange incident at sea and more about what happened to Rayler's first wife. We could not substantiate anything he said, but we could substantiate alternatives. In season two of Lost Hills, Dead in the Water, host Dana Goodyear tells a story of swingers, money, and the Malibu vibe of the 70s. It also re-examines the question of whether the deaths were a cold water accident or cold-blooded murder. Spoiler alert, we are going to be talking about extensive plot points and spoilers from Lost Hills Season 2. So if you want to remain spoiler-free, go to the estimated time code in our show notes to hear our thumbs-up or thumbs-down reviews. Laura Brecker. Sounds like Thursday is the same as Monday, huh? Uh, it's true, except all we should say all the episodes are out of this podcast, and they're yeah. very spoilery, right? And I'm just going to say, like this, we're going to get spoilery, right? We're going to do it. Sure. Yeah. So Thursday is the same as Monday, as it always is. Laura Bricker. Yes. Were you or were you not afraid during this whole podcast that someone was going to get Legionnaire's disease because everybody was <laughs> naked in hot tubs the entire time? Good God. Yeah. Hot tubbing, the nudity. Have you ever heard of somebody having nude, like naked friend parties every single night in their hot tub all the time is that a lifestyle you aspire to yes or no i mean i love hot tubs as much as the next person (laughs) i'm gonna say i really love hot tubs but i was like what the heck is going on with the hot tubs in this podcast every episode was like and then they're in the hot tub and then they're in the hot tub so like first we hear like oh in the first wife oh and, and they would go in the hot tub in the evening and have several bottles of wine and then, oh, wait, now he's got a hot tub business. Now he's, <laughs> he's making hot tubs and selling hot tubs. No, that means he's a gigolo. I'm like, wow, that is the life to live. Hmm. He's selling hot tubs. He's sitting in hot tubs. He's having sex in hot tubs. There's a lot of hot tubs in the show. But I think what I loved about the hot tub theme about this show was that for me, it really just transported me back to this like 1970s swingers culture in California. And that to me, came through so clearly listening to this. And I think that sort of set up this story because you have that culture where, uh, you know, there's a lot of information that is known about people when you're hanging in the hot tub with no clothes on. So that then- (laughs) A lot. Or little, Kevin, or little, I don't know. A lot of Um, peen. A lot or a little opinion, I don't know. But I'm just saying, so that then when that person calls the police after the second wife dies in like the staircase Malibu style. Yes, thank um, you. Yeah, it's like, well, of course they know all this stuff. They've all been sitting in the hot tub together. Yes. <laughs> so I am like, of course they know all this information. So I was really like sort of transported in listening to these hot tub stories. I don't know if I was transported, but there certainly were a lot of like very swinging 70s stereotypes in this podcast. Right, Toby? Yeah, it was like the salacious bingo card of the 70s. Because <laughs> <laughs> you got the hot tubs, you got the swingers, you've got the weird like sort of 
semi-cultish self-help thing where she thinks she's psychic and, you know, they do weird confrontations and all this stuff. Allie McGraw. <laughs> Allie McGraw Man. and Steve McQueen. Uh, I haven't thought about Allie McGraw in 20 years, and then she shows up a half dozen times in the same podcast. <laughs> it's like Macklemore showing up in Suspect. <laughs> <laughs> Got stewardesses. Um, yeah, so it's, it's a lot of good 70s stuff, which is, uh, like, I agree with Laura, I, and I assume this will be a big part of the, when it comes to a limited series on some cable channel, that will be <laughs> a big part of it, but it does... <laughs> It does kind of make the backstory that much more interesting because it does kind of play to these kind of stereotypes, I guess, that we yeah. have about the 70s based on things like the like uh, the Ice Storm and, you know, Starsky and Hutch and stuff like that. But apparently these people were really kind of living it. Yeah. So Fred was really slinging the D there, huh, Kevin? I mean... Yes, next question. <laughs> but no, you you also made the comment about sort of the hot tub lifestyle and sort of the swing in 70s-ness of this. Like, yeah. did you feel transported or do you feel like this was just lore? Well, no, I mean, and look, to be honest, you know, the 10 episodes, it wasn't 10 episodes of people in hot tubs. There were two particular episodes, the shallow end ones, that, you know, we're going back and trying to find out more about Jean, the first wife, like I said, it just they really are trying to set not only a time but also a place. Malibu. And Malibu is sort of the running theme in the Lost Hills podcast. You remember in season one, it had to do with that killer in the park. And then we had all these characters from Malibu, including that local reporter that I call Malibu Bricker. Yep. <laughs> Laura remembers her. So it's, yeah, they're really trying to capture this uh, place that was Malibu up and coming before it was super rich. It was a place where the famous could go to hide as opposed to now it's where the famous can be seen. So, yeah, I, I got a good sense of kind of why Malibu becomes a character again. And it's only in part because of the, you know, the local gossipy people there that are you know, can't stop talking about Fred's first wife and his second wife. This actually leads me to a question that, like, none of you have ever sent me a note about, but I had this question in the first series, and I have this question again. Why? Is, is, Mal, is this an interesting enough place and a compelling enough place to base a multi-season podcast around? Like, should we, uh, like regular Americans who don't live in a place like Malibu, be fascinated enough with this place to be drawn enough to stories about a place just because they take place in this place. Was it like offshore? You know, offshore has stories about class. How about, how about make about the quality of the stories? Well, I'm just curious, but that, but that, that's the frame of this podcast. So the yep. frame of the podcast is about this. They're based because of they're in this place. And I'm just curious, is this place a compelling enough place? I just want to know your thoughts. Cause I find myself thinking like, I want to sweep that aside and focus on the story. But then I find myself thinking like, I also have to sweep that aside because she talks about Malibu a fuck ton in this podcast. Like, it's not like it just happens to be here. Like, she makes it a character in the story, like, a lot. So do you think she, like, scoped out several stories? Or do you think Lost Hills did well enough and they're like, okay, can you find another Malibu story? I think she lives there. <laughs> and she kind of... Yeah, and she's just like I, you know, there's there's stuff here. I mean, I, I I just think it has to do with like the small townness vibe, but it's also not a relatable place. And I'm just curious, you know, I I guess it's just something that I find myself wondering because these certainly aren't relatable people, and I'm wondering if that's why it might be seen as interesting. I don't know. I just these are questions I find myself wondering, just like from a journalistic angle. Yeah, I don't know if it's like the same thing as like the OC or whatever, where it's like 
The OC, sort of, that, that's fucking interesting. Uh, aspirational or, you know, I think Malibu, it's like one of the one of those places where you just say Malibu and it brings up all these images. Like people have assumptions about Malibu and you can, in the, in the show, you can play on them or against them yeah. and, and have that kind of happen. Whereas if you were like Boca Raton or something, I think yep. that would not have the same kind of instant recognition. Right. But I, I don't know. And I, I wonder how many... Like, what's season three going to be? Are they going to be getting down to, like, the dregs of, like, what has happened in Malibu? Or are we going to, like... Johnny Carson's drunk driving arrest? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, Laura, you said something earlier that I said over and over and over again. This case has a lot of echoes of the Michael Peterson case of The Staircase. I frankly don't think it's as interesting as the Michael Peterson case. I don't think it's as... Um, no. It's necessarily as is he or or isn't he or did he or didn't he or doesn't have as many layers and as much as many criminal justice components, in my opinion. But it does have a lot of the same components, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, the first thing I'm thinking as I'm listening to this is like, OK, we've got two wives, two wives that drowned, a life insurance policy. Oh, wait, now we have the children who are supporting him in his innocence and think he didn't do it. I'm like, where's the owl? Where's the owl who stuffed these people <laughs> under the water out in the ocean? Do you Where's think the Lucky the Beagle did it? The, the owl <laughs> lady. lifted lady. the dog. Lady the Beagle. The lady. owl lifted Lady up the rock wall so that Lady lived. So I think that it has that sort of element to it in the fact that like we have this husband who has this sort of recurring situation where, oh, we've got two wives, two wives that died in the same way. But- Unlike the Michael Peterson case in The Staircase, where we have this super compelling, interesting story with the behind-the-scenes defense attorney, with the behind-the-scenes case, this one, I don't find like it's that interesting to me in terms of the intrigue that's involved. I'm like, yeah, we got hot tubs, we got swingers, but it just doesn't have the same sort of hold on me that The Staircase did. But there are a lot of parallels in terms of the way that this particular case plays out. Well, isn't it, you know, the troubling thing that we're more likely to believe that he killed his second wife if we believe that he killed his first? Yes. So now it becomes trying to prove he killed the first wife in order to prove that he killed the second? Right, except we this only... It's like a bank shot, you know? Exactly. But here's the, here's the question I have for you. And Kevin, mm. you've we all have notes on this. Yeah. And I thought my... I This is what troubled me about the podcast. The podcast has a very strange pacing situation where we are given tantalizing tidbits again and again and again and again. Uh, Verna's first husband. Uh, is Fred a serial killer? All these weird little parenthetical asides, right? Pseudo cliffhangers. That are just completely left dangling, like like hanging participles that are just never finished and never explored. And it seems like this endless series of teases over and over and over again that I found myself, you know, you listened to it after I did. And I was like, can you do me a favor and just tell me, did I miss this? Did I miss this? Did I miss this? You had a similar experience, right? Yeah. I mean, there were a couple places where things were, yeah, you said left unanswered. You know, there was the one like, is he a serial killer? You, you mean, what are you talking about? Yeah, what are you talking about? <laughs> but, I mean, the most, I mean, the, I think the most egregious one is yeah, there was talk about in a tease, I think it was at the end of episode seven, about uh, of, of weird insurance things. And then there's a montage of, of clips of talking about fires and whatnot. 
lighting his car on fire to get the insurance settlement to act as a down payment on a new car. Their parents, but they burned down a farmhouse to collect the insurance, as I understand. Fires, bike accidents, car accidents, tractor accidents, a houseboat on fire, Pap-Pap's barn on fire. If it's true, and I say if, it shows early on the ability to conceive of insurance fraud. We never hear that, but we hear some of that audio in episode 10 talking about, you know, the... The house uh, fires or whatever. Well, no, I don't even know that they said that like it was a troubling... That audio is his daughter talking yeah. about his bad luck. It has nothing to do with insurance. Right, right. Look, so you, you have like this idea that, you know, uh, they explored whether Fred pushed Verna's husband off the roof. They don't the explore roof. it. Well, no, no. They, look, <laughs> no, the police explored it, right? So you're putting this together. How do you present that to your audience? It's almost like a musical note, right? There's a musical quality to it. Do you present it that it's merely notable that the police considered this? Or do you leave it as sort of a serious part of the investigation, knowing nothing comes of it? It's sort of the way that you play the note. Is it a little downbeat? Or is it this swelling chord? Da, da, da. You know, it just, it seemed like there were things that went nowhere and that were dropped only to come back and say, yeah, that wasn't allowed in court. But Toby... She has interviews with Fred. She talked to the investigator that worked on Fred's case on the prosecution side, right? I didn't hear anybody ask anybody. I didn't hear her ask anybody about what his alibi was, what his potential connection was to Verna's first husband's death. It was just sort of mentioned. And then it was mentioned that it wasn't allowed at trial, right? You also sent me a note. Did I miss a part about that? That wasn't the only incident. It was one of a few um, another one, for instance, was his relationship with Doug, right? right? We hear many, many people talking about his upsetting relationship with Doug because he was Verna's favorite, um, that he disciplined Doug differently than disciplined the other people. You never hear Dana ask the daughters, was his relationship with Doug different than his relationship with you? You never hear her ask Fred, what was your relationship with Doug like? There are all these things that are just left out there to hang. Yeah, I thought the thing with... Uh with Verna's first husband was kind of a big omission to like kind of bring, cause like by hitting at that, that's thinking way ahead. I mean, that's manipulating things to a great, great degree. Right. I mean, you're, you're killing your wife and then you're killing this other woman's husband. So you guys can get married and she's not going to know, or she's got, you know, that seems to like kind of fall into the like criminal mastermind kind of thing rather than, what he, you know, is accused of being, which is a, a psychopath who's who's killing women for money so he can be a deadbeat, basically. It's somewhat reassuring to hear other people say they didn't catch it either. Because when it was over and I was like writing notes, I'm like, you know, I don't know what happened. Like, I, I was driving around some of the times, which, by the way, some of the interview tape is oh. so hard to understand while you're driving. Yeah, I was just I just gave up. I was like, you know, hopefully the she's audio gonna... levels were really bad. Yeah, yeah, it was very poorly mixed. Yeah, yeah. hopefully she'll recap or whatever because I just didn't get any of that. I listened while walking and some of the phone, the old fo archival phone interviews. Yeah. They should, I mean, you could hear them. I could hear them kind of, but I was even when I was walking, I was like, oh, someone in a car is never going to be able to fucking hear what this is. <laughs> yeah, and it just seems like you could just like do a quick recap at the end of it yeah. or something and just be yeah. like, yeah, so, you know, what they're saying is this. Laura, I found myself too with pacing. You sent me a note about pacing too. Like, Dana really seems to love details. 
almost to like um, the detriment of the things we need to know. So, for instance, like I know about the decor of Fred's house. I know that there's a a fireplace in their boat. Um, I know about how he disciplined his kids with um, a brick wrapped in paper. I know about the the coins in the jar. But then I feel like there are large swaths of the story that I just don't really have a grasp on. And that feels like a pacing issue to me. Do you have a similar experience? I did. Um, So I like what Kevin said. Like we know up front what the story is with this. We know Fred is saying he's innocent. But I feel like then we go into this sort of like introspective, like long and slow story about the lifestyle in California. And we sort of, to me, lose And, and I'm like, yeah, OK, like the 1970s orgy stuff, like that's interesting and all. <laughs> um, the scene is interesting and all. But to me, I was like, wait, what happened to the Innocence Project? Like, they, why were they, they disappeared? In this case? Yeah. They disappear. We never hear from I about them again. Never never heard about them again and like all those sort of things i felt like um okay so we went back into this like straightforward storytelling mode of the family and the story and what happened but what that did to me with the pacing was it took me out of the why do i believe he didn't do it right why do i believe this was a wrongful conviction why do I feel like I might support the position that the family members, his children and the past children are taking in this case? And I'm like, I don't know why I would be taking their position because I'm not feeling the intensity of that in the way that the story is being told because it's being told in such a slow, methodical way. And and we have great access to all sorts of people involved in the story. And that's great, but it's not to me, continuing to ask the question of, is this guy wrongfully convicted? Is this something that we should be invested in? Is this something that I should be rage walking about? I, I don't know. Yeah. Did, did you feel anything? That's what I felt. Fa- I was like, I no. I felt I very felt like, disconnected. You know what I felt? Yeah. yeah. I, I want a hot tub. That's what I felt, Rebecca. Yeah. <laughs> That's what I felt. Yeah. Yeah. When you talk about you know the California Innocence Project, it does get mentioned early on but I, I want to know, well, why? Why do you, th- why do they think that there might be a wrongful conviction here? It's certainly, we infer when they get name dropped that this is going to be a story about a potentially wrongful conviction. So we're listening for those details. And in a way, it's one of those things that helps make like for a good amount of conflict narratively because now we hear a lot of this stuff he's guilty oh that looks bad that looks bad the whole time we're like think okay look for the thing look for the thing that actually you know is the mistake the thing that will exonerate him and that never comes and in the end in the final episode we find out that dana also decides that no i think he did it so i wonder if the california innocence project is involved at all other than they looked at it yeah um but the whole time, I think we're all led to at least believe that there's this chance that he's wrongfully convicted. And other than like the weird forensic evidence that was introduced, we don't really see that. So it's just sort of another thing that was kind of thrown out and not followed up on and left a weird impression about where the story's going. Disney Plus and Hulu are better together in the Disney bundle with new movies and series. 
On Disney Plus, experience the full Taylor Swift The Eras Tour, Taylor's version, with new main show performances and acoustic collection. On Hulu, follow the fantastical evolution of Bella Baxter, played by Emma Stone in the award-winning film Poor Things. All of these and more streaming this month. Get the Disney Bundle with Disney Plus and Hulu. Terms apply. See DisneyBundle.com for details. Everything's changing so fast these days, and that's a great thing. I mean, back in my day, we were lucky if we could get one video to load on our desktop computer. But now there's the Xfinity 10G network. That means the fastest internet with faster speeds rolling out every day and internet that can power a house full of devices at once with ultra low lag. So while one person streams a movie from their room, another can play video games in the basement while another TikToks in the kitchen. It's the next generation 10G network only from Xfinity. The future starts now. Restrictions apply. Actual speeds vary and not guaranteed. Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, a central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions. All right, so Kevin, let's take a quick break for the business section. What have we got going on in our Patreon right now? Uh, we've got the latest episode of Leave It to Bricker. Yes. Uh, Laura has been traveling around Exeter looking for places to bury bodies. Oh, we know. Both fictionally and, I guess, literally, one of them happens to be a well in the basement of a creepy-ass church. Is nice. that right? Yeah. And uh, also, we have we have coming up uh, later on a new episode of Married with Podcasts. We do. Where you and I dole out marriage information and advice to people. Can't wait. Uh, they can. Yes. <laughs> and by the way, it's still time tonight... Uh, you can still get in to watch uh, Toby Ball record the latest episode of the Deep Dive Book Club. They're talking about A Line to Kill mm. by Anthony Horowitz. And Toby, who are your guests? Uh, my guests are Shirley Layrow and Janet Farney and our very own Rebecca Lavoie. Yay! Ooh, Rebecca Lavoie. And I believe uh, in England they pronounce it Anthony Horowitz. Anthony Horowitz. Just saying, Kevin. Of course, that's one of the Hawthorne mysteries, and Anthony Horowitz is one of my favorite writers. I'm so excited to talk about that with you, Toby. Uh, Toby, have you ever considered writing a series of books that in which you are a character? Because I think that would be very brave. Uh, it would be even more brave for me, because <laughs> I don't know what I would add to it very much of my own life. <laughs> They'd be like, hey, let's go to Lexi's Burgers right now. Yep. <laughs> oh, my God. Toby, I love Lexi's Burgers. You want to go? Yeah. <laughs> 100%. I've got, All right, I've got a lot of Lexi's eating to do. Before we go back to the show, Kevin, do we have any Patreon patron saints of the week this week? Our Patreon patron saints are Jenny Newman and Julie Newport. Bless you. It's a new year, so we have two news in that one. We do? Yeah. All right. Well, Happy New Year, everyone. So let's just, like, leave episode 10 aside for one second. Yeah. Because I feel like episode 10 is a completely different podcast. Episode 10 sounds like is part of a completely different podcast than episodes one through nine, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. It sounds like it was produced by, like... A different team written by a different person. It's paced completely differently. And in episode seven, I was like, okay, 
Now I feel like I have the whole story. This is the case. This is everything that happened. Now I know why people think he did it. It took seven episodes, right? And then we have like the trial, right? And then we have sort of the visit to the sisters is episode nine. We have in episode nine, this what is supposed to be this very kind of like, you know, visiting the sisters, very emotional, very like, what do you think? Where are you? Dad kind of that's supposed to be like the reckoning. I felt I hate to say it like nothing, which is very hard to do to visit the family of a convicted person. There's like a um, I don't know what it is, a disconnect between for me, the listener and this material. And I, I can't figure out what the disconnect is, whether it's the writing, whether it's the order in which it's put together or whether I found myself when I, we got to episode 10 and she did what she did. If she knew where she was going to go and then episodes one through nine were produced with that lens. So she was disconnected and therefore I was disconnected. Is Does that make like any sense to anybody? Because I... It is very hard to listen to children pleading for their freedom of their father and like feel nothing. You know what I mean? Toby, what do you think? Yeah, I guess. I mean, she's a she's a New Yorker reporter, I think. Yeah. Or, or she's written for the New Yorker. Yeah. And, and some of this kind of had the feel of a New Yorker article in that there's New Yorker crime articles that are often like these stories about these people and, and what happens to them and you know, it's it's not like a true crime podcast so much as it is more a story of people's lives. So it didn't surprise me too much. I think part of the thing was the interviews with the women, like the daughters, were so, seemed to me, like a lot of it was focused on their reactions at the time, yeah, which was like years and years and years ago. So it didn't have like the kind of immediacy, maybe that would have provoked more of a response. It's not like, you know, my days are haunted by this or whatever. It's like, listen to this shit I wrote when I was 11. That was pretty sad. Um, (laughs) And then here's another one. Dear Fred, (laughs) and then dad in parentheses. I was crying when I heard the news. I miss you so very much. And I hope you come home soon. Will you write us back? You know, and then it switches like after nine. It's, I mean, it's, it's like um, fatal vision. Yeah. Right by Joe McGinnis, where eighty percent of the book is this one kind of book, and then the last twenty percent, it's like, oh yeah, by the way, spoiler alert if you haven't read it, but I think the statute of limitations has passed. Okay, that, he's like, oh yeah, and after all this stuff and all this accident or whatever, I think he's guilty. I'm pretty sure he's guilty, and that's kind of feels like the way this was. It was like, okay, I kind of laid out this whole big thing, and then in the last episode, that this is my conclusion. And I don't know if, if the thought was that the first nine episodes were kind of dispassionate and were sort of taking a more clinical look at what at the evidence and what had happened. And then the final episode was like, okay, after all that, this is my conclusion. This is the editorial part of it or what. But that was, that was kind of my take. So let's talk about the forensics in this case, because they are questionable. Um So we have a disgraced pathologist uh, who could not testify in the trial. And we have some very prejudicial uh, testimony in the trial, including a recreated murder scene with a full-sized boat held up between two ladders in front of the jury. It was very dramatic. He took the dummy and he slammed it against the boat. And, And somehow, I think on his hat or something, there was some carbon 
something that uh, created a pattern. And that pattern was the same pattern they found on Doug's head after the accident. Kevin, what did you think about the forensics and this whole trial nonsense in this case? Well, I mean, I thought it was pretty rage-inducing. It's it's nuts because at one point, didn't they think that the weapon used to strike them on the back of the head was an oar? Yes. Because the oars were not recovered? Yes. And now they're saying, well, look, the, the mark uh, that we found uh, matches this part of the boat. Yes. Again, I don't know how many times they had to smash a dummy up against other parts of the the dory to make the same mark. Like 182 or something Yeah, but like the, it was really interesting that one of the other uh, doctors, uh, experts, said something about the marks that came uh, in the second autopsy, which was done days after the first one where there were no marks, that the mark on the neck very likely could have been from... You know, the slab that they were on, the way that the body was held at the, you know, sort of the back of the neck, because, you know, there were no marks at the original time of the, you know, the first autopsy. Yeah. And we find out later that it was the basis of an appeal and that the judges uh, agreed that it was uh, hinky, but uh, they didn't feel that it changed the outcome of the trial. Yeah. So, Laura, I thought Fred was shady as fuck, probably a narcissist. I think it's much likelier and much probably, I don't want to say more provable, but in terms of means, motive, and opportunity, a more likely case to be made about Kim killing his first wife, given the circumstances around that, I think seems more of a likely like set of circumstances. The second murder set of murders seems like a much more difficult one to both prove and execute, right? What yep. did you think just about just the, the facts of the case and the way that it was put together and, and presented? Like, were you Convince? Like, where do you kind of land on it? What does your gut say? And what do you think in terms of the evidence and what we were told in in the court case and in the podcast? It's hard because I want that, like, defense side of my personality to be like, caution, caution. Don't jump to conclusions. But it sounds super suspect. You know, like I said, this is like the staircase Malibu. It's like, you know, his first wife dies in the swimming pool. And then they're like, yeah, something's a little fishy here. And then we have the second wife, the first wife's best friend and son, who die during this this sailing incident. Then it comes out that like the life insurance was like taken out just before. And and the part that really doesn't set right with me is the dog. The fact that the dog survived through all this. So he's like carrying everybody as he's like swimming and all this stuff. I'm like. No, the dog would have been fine to scramble up the rocks. 100%. Agreed. Yeah. So the whole thing just sort of rings a little bit off to me. And then when you take the other parts of this, which is like the first wife died in the swimming pool. He took out the life insurance policy. He started going with the ex-wife's best friend and now they're married. And I'm sorry, Fred, but you're not helping yourself. Why kill the son? I mean, Toby, you have to admit, I think they make a compelling case for him having done the second. I mean, I th- my personal opinion is that he killed his first wife. I think he very likely did the second thing. But is it or is it not a very fucking complicated way to execute the second murders? And why involve the son? And why make it so fucking complicated when your whole family is on a boat like 100 feet away? It does seem like a lot in terms of a plan especially if you're a raging narcissist who's a really good planner, in my opinion. I'm not saying you didn't do it. I kind of think you did, too. 
But the forensics in this are shitty as fuck, are they not? Uh, yeah. Like, I don't know. I guess the theory is that he planned it out and, and this was his plan and he carried it through or whatever and not that at that moment he decided that he had to do it or whatever, just lost control. I was a little amazed by the guy who Dana interviews about the pool drownings. And he's yeah. like, no sober adult ever drowns in a pool. It doesn't happen. It never does. Adult humans that are not intoxicated won't drown in a swimming pool. It doesn't happen. If it does happen, they either committed suicide or they are a victim of homicide. Okay, it's easy. Really? Ever? <laughs> it never Ever? happens? In the world? <laughs> That's. I'm not sure I'd put a guy in prison for the rest of his life based on that statement. And then there's the thing about the dead man's float, which, I mean, the first one just seems super shady just because his telling of the story and about how they were drinking wine and... You know, blah, blah, blah. And that he blah. said that she wasn't leaving and she said she was leaving the marriage. Like, that's why it was shady to me. Oh, well, I just thought it was like he's he had this whole thing about them drinking and that was why she drowned and all this stuff. And it turned out she didn't have any alcohol in her system. And, you know, the wine bottles and glass were just obviously placed there for effect since she hadn't drunk anything. So, I yeah, I don't know. I sort of had the same basic thought that you have, which is the first one seems, you know, fairly clear cut. The second one, it seems like an awful lot of trouble, but then I don't want to try and put myself into that guy's mindset yep. as yep. to like what would make sense for him. Like I'm sure he was able to to talk himself into it. Like maybe that was going to be the best opportunity for him. But again, it's like if he's going to Mexico, like it seems like it'd be really easy to leave the kids on the boat and, yeah, and kill them yeah. there. Kill them there. Not with your your own parents on the yacht. Yes, yeah. kill them yeah. in Mexico. Kevin, thoughts? Uh, well, look, we hear very early on that in the first autopsy of Doug and Verna that there was no bruising, there was no sign, anything that would look like somebody held them down right. in the water, okay? So we're like, okay, that's great evidence to show that it's just a drowning. And then later on, we hear Dana say that one of the experts says, yes, there is a way to uh, drown someone without leaving any marks. How? I don't know because she didn't get into it. Now, I don't they know. They never if explain. They never explain. Now, you don't need to MacGyver it for me. I so do now, it with two people. It's the same thing you can do in a calm swimming pool that you also can do in the open, choppy sea. I, I don't know. I needed to be able to evaluate that statement somehow. You don't have to tell me how you can burn down a house, but you should be able to, you know, Tell me enough that I would believe that because we've established as fact throughout the whole yeah. podcast. And now we're like, oh, there's a way. Well, tell me what it says, is. Says who? You and, know, and, well, not just says who, but says how. Another thing that they say over and over again. Well, Doug and Verna could swim. They were fucking wearing clothes and pants. Everybody knows that someone wearing jeans and pants Cannot that gets swim. heavy, yeah. Everybody knows that. Like, you learn that as a child, that if you fall into the water and you're wearing clothes and pants, take off your fucking shoes and your pants. Like, everybody knows that, right? You learn that as a kid when you're at Girl Scout camp learning to swim. The second thing that troubles me in any case, including the Lacey Peterson case, which I've said many times, no one should ever predicate somebody's guilt or innocence based on the behavior of a dog <laughs> ever because no one can predict what a dog is going to do and you would be fucking amazed what dogs can do if you've ever seen a dog fall off a boat or fall off a dock 
you'd be amazed the shit a dog can climb up. I'm not saying a dog can climb up a 60-foot rock face, but I am saying I've seen dogs scramble up shit you would not believe they can scramble up. All right, Maybe so the dog took them out. I would like to quickly just talk about the final episode of the podcast, because it does yeah. take this hard, hard right turn, as I said. It's very different than every other episode. I personally, if the whole podcast were like episode 10, I think we'd be having a very different conversation. I thought episode 10 was strong in its own way. Uh, Dana had a very strong voice in it. Um, It was like written very differently, um, kind of came at guns blazing. Um, I also felt she betrayed her subjects in a way that was kind of stunning after just hearing this conversation with the daughters. Like, because you listen to it sequentially, I just heard this conversation five seconds before. Mm -hmm. And then she's like... But I think he's lying. Fred, I have to ask you, did you kill Gene? I did not. But I don't believe him. So, Toby, what did you think of this tonal shift? And just generally speaking, what did you think of episode 10? Yeah, I, I agree with you. I think it was the strongest episode. And I, and I do, you know, I thought it was a good choice to come out with what she thought. Like, what did she make of all this? And to have a point of view rather than just kind of laying out the story and like, well, who knows? There could be this, it could be that. What do you think about the fact that she does not hint at any other point in the podcast that she's going to have a point of view and then she all of a sudden does? Mm -hmm. I think that's fine. And again, I kind of go back to Fatal Vision where I think that that model is out there. You know, that's one way of doing it. You know, maybe it's not the most effective way to do it in, in most cases, but it's not, I mean... This isn't coming out of the blue. Like, this hmm. This is something that people do. Uh, and I think it's fine. Like, I think it's fine to tell a pretty straightforward story and save your sort of editorializing or your, your sort of analysis of the facts until the end. Is that the best way to do this particular one? You know, I don't know. I agree with you that, like, if the whole thing, like, it's not even just, like, her having a strong voice and an opinion, but just the writing, it just seemed tighter. Yeah, agreed. Like, I don't know if they had to make a 10-episode, like, it was a mandated 10 episodes or something, and that maybe that contributed to this kind of languorous pace. But if it, they had tightened up the writing throughout the whole thing, and maybe it was, like, six episodes, uh, I think it would have been a, a much tighter little package. But yeah, I mean, I, I again, I thought it, I thought it ended stronger than the rest of it was, which left a better taste in my mouth than it probably would have if it had ended after episode nine. Yeah, I think it's it's odd that I mean, again, it, it, there's this series of dropping things and not following up on them or just coming out of nowhere, and this was one. If if we had heard that along the way that this was something that she was going to be, you know, trying to find out for herself and make her own declaration, then it wouldn't have sort of come out of nowhere. When you know say she betrayed her subject, that's what you gotta do yeah, sometimes. I was fine with that part of it. And she at least she was being honest. It's tough to like, you know, be around and make friends with some people and then like dash their dreams that uh, I'm on the other side of something. I just wanted to mention one other thing that I wanted to talk about, and I'll do it very briefly, is I'll give it a lot of credit. There were two episodes where they talked about Gene, and uh, they were labeled part one and part two. And I wish more podcasts would do this. You have a subject where it's going to be, you got allotted, it's going to be either a super long episode, 
that's going to be out of uh, balance with the rest of the series. Or you do the thing that sometimes they do is like they'll get to a certain point and then they'll pick up another episode and finish it there. But it seems weird because you feel like, didn't they just finish this? By labeling it part one and part two, you keep the length of both of the things tight. You can throw a cliffhanger in the middle, but you understand there is a sub story within the larger story. It fits well. You know who did that? Who? Jason Moon and Bear Brook did that. There you go. Oh, my God. Not Jason Moon. Part one and part two. Yeah. So uh, just what you were saying, Kevin, to add on about episode 10, my issue, only issue with it is I don't care that it was different, but she didn't seem interested in having an opinion at at all in the whole rest of the series. Right. I didn't have a sense that there was any curiosity about did or didn't. And I I'm not saying that I needed to know, like, hey, I'm going to solve this thing or not. But the it's not also like a terribly brave stance to say a guy who's been in jail for 40 years did the crime. <laughs> no, you know, no, just- I just I I don't want to put myself in Dana's head. I felt disconnected to the material as a listener. So I felt that she was disconnected as a storyteller. So to hear such a strong connection from her as a storyteller in episode 10 just felt like a, such a strong tonal change for me. And it made me long for that in episodes one through nine, if that makes sense. So Toby, there's one scene in this podcast that stuck out to you, that stuck out to me too, that was super weird. And uh, do you want to talk about that? Sure. Well, when Dana's visiting the daughters at one of the one of the places, she goes up to a, an attic or a loft or something, and she finds there's like a boat that has... You're gonna have to help me out. I think it's got some oars it's like a pool. and maybe a skeleton. It was a, a pool. skeleton and like a a disembodied head or something and an oar and an oar. It's it's all it's very weird, but it's all this stuff that's kind of connected to potentially the second murder. It was, it was like a Douglas murder dummy or something. Yeah, and yeah. it was just like and so Dana's like and she didn't see it and uh and she's like oh well you know when it's pointed out the daughter's like oh. That's kind of weird. But then Dana says something weird about like how like she thought that she was trying to assess whether she was guilty of putting it together or innocent of putting it together or something. And I couldn't quite figure out like where she was going with that. And I think what she was saying was whether it was intentional or not. Yeah. It's a very odd scene. And I was trying to think about how that could have been deployed better in the show to have more effect but the reaction to it was kind of like, did she do this on purpose or not? And I don't have anything to prove that she did it on purpose. I thought the implication was that he did it as like practice for killing Douglas, like when he was visiting that house or something. Yeah, I was I don't very know. confused about what that meant. It yeah. was really fucked up. Disney Plus and Hulu are better together in the Disney bundle with new movies and series. On Disney Plus, experience the full Taylor Swift The Eras Tour, Taylor's version, with new main show performances and acoustic collection. On Hulu, follow the fantastical evolution of Bella Baxter, played by Emma Stone in the award-winning film Poor Things. All of these and more streaming this month. Get the Disney Bundle with Disney Plus and Hulu. Terms apply. See DisneyBundle.com for details. Walmart Plus members save on Meeting Up With Friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. 
Paramount Plus Essential Plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions. Today's podcast is sponsored by June's Journey. June's Journey is a hidden object mystery game which transports you into a bygone age of mystery, danger, and romance set in the glamorous 1920s. You'll play as June Parker as she embarks on a quest to solve her sister's murder. But that's not all. You'll let your imagination run wild as you get to customize your own luxurious estate island with expensive gardens and beautiful buildings. So, can you crack the case? Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. All right, well, I think we should do what we do. Let's let our listeners know, should they check out Season 2 of Lost Hills from Pushkin? Laura Bricker, what do you think about this podcast? Thumbs up or thumbs down? I'm like thumbs sideways on this. Um, I think this is a really interesting case. I think this is like, it could be like the Staircase Malibu version, but I feel like this podcast didn't need to be 10 episodes. I think this podcast could have been five episodes and told the story in a more effective way. And for me, the 10 episodes just kind of, even though they were short, just sort of dragged on for me and lost momentum and lost that feeling of like, I need to listen to this. I think what I liked about this was this like 1970s sort of cultural window. And we heard a lot about what was going on at the time and the people that were involved. We had a lot of great access. But I feel like for me, I wanted a little bit more about the legal side of this and why this was a wrongful conviction and where is the Innocence Project and where are the legal people involved in this? And we heard a lot from the family. We heard a lot from the friends. I guess I just wanted to hear more from the lawyers and the people that would have been involved in the court process in this because the family and friends and the story of the whole thing was interesting. But what would have bumped it up a notch for me is if I felt like a real sense of, wow, this is definitely a wrongful conviction and this is why I need to get on board. And I didn't come away feeling like that. And that's unfortunate. Toby Ball. I'm kind of torn. I'm probably a thumb sideways. I think I liked it more than than you guys did, but it's it is it's just kind of slow. And while a lot of the stuff that's slow is kind of interesting, it's still slow. Like in just the whole thing, I there's no sense of like real urgency to me about this case just in general. It's it's kind of like you're just listening to a story, right? And it's being told at an unhurried pace and it's kind of interesting. It's well written, I think. Uh, but again, it's just there's no sort of imperative to it. So um, I guess I'm a thumb sideways. Kevin Flynn. I'm going thumbs down. I never got a sense of where we were going and why we we're on this journey. It ends up being kind of a nothing burger. So to have invested what was invested in telling the story and for the audience to go around, I don't the juice wasn't worth the squeeze. It just wasn't. And also, you know, they could have done a lot better with the audio on the archival tape. That was, you know... It, it, that was it, a layup. It was that was a layup, yes. You know, it just did not sound good. That certainly took it down. But then again, you know, I just... Uh, I think we thought we were getting a different kind of investigation, and instead we got just a, sort of a warmed-over story uh you know looking back at a historical crime doesn't really move the needle for me yeah i'm going thumb sideways in this podcast um sideways be- and not down for me because 
even if we weren't listening to it for this show, if I started listening to it when all 10 episodes are out, which they are now, I would have continued listening to it. So like I would have finished it. Like I wouldn't be like, oh, I'm going to stop listening to this. So thumbs down. Like it's good enough to keep listening to, I guess, what is what I'm trying to say? Like the writing is good. But honestly, like it just could be edited a lot better. Dana's connection to the material could be stronger. It just felt very clinical to me and distant. Again, like you, Kevin, I, I wasn't sure why I was listening to it or, or why I was being told about it. The strongest part of the story for me was Doug's childhood friend in many ways. I almost wish like he'd been the end to the story rather than the in, in that we got. Um, there was a lot of potential here, just a lot of un realized potential that was really disappointing that being said it wasn't terrible so i i can't i i I can't really go thumbs down so i'm gonna go thumb sideways for this season of lost hills all right that's gonna do it for us but before we go laura bricker do we have a cat of the week this week we do hold on i'm gonna pull it up for you here so a few weeks ago i was discussing my love of the norwegian forest cats these are like Maine coon cats but like Five times the size. They're gigantic. Yes. And mm-hmm. apparently, um, a few years ago, I actually selected a Norwegian forest cat that belonged to Hannah Morin, and she lives in Sweden. And her cat, uh, Egon, was Cat of the Week back in 2017. Nice. And Egon, unfortunately, passed away Aww. in August of 2021. Aww. And it was very sad They didn't know they were ready for a new cat, and COVID has made adopting animals very difficult. But in April, Siv, a.k.a. Sivan, arrived. She was found abandoned and came to us through the animal welfare. She had been found outside and passed through two temporary homes where she didn't feel at home until she landed with us by real coincidence. And this is why I picked this cat. She is the same color as Egon. She is a orange kind of yellow cat, just like all my cats that I love. We're not specifically looking for this cat, but we love that she's the same color. We can tell she has probably been starved since she loves all sort of food. And she is very upset if we're a little late with breakfast or dinner. The picture on the couch, which I sent to Kevin, is when she discovered my popcorn bowl. By the way, she loves popcorn. Uh, She loves hunting. And this part I love, she doesn't just keep the mice away from our house, but our neighbor's house as well. The longest her GPS recorded one night was that she walked seven kilometers around our village. Wow. Yeah, that's intense. So I'm a fan of Siv, the new Norwegian forest cat. I would still take a Norwegian forest cat if somebody wants to deliver one to my house. Hmm. I can totally have four cats. It's not a big deal. Today, I went out to the horse barn with my friend and the chocolate lady, and um, we, we met a little miniature pony named Willow that was about the size of my cat, and I, I tried to put it in the Where back the fuck the is the story going? Where it's, no, we got miniature I horses. We got miniature, Oh, my God. Chocolate people. <laughs> I wanted the miniature pony, Kevin. That's where the story's going, is I wanted the miniature pony. It would have fit in the car. The miniature <laughs> pony would have fit in the car, Kevin. This is really, it's a so, journey. Anyway, it's hey, the, we're two it, episodes now. I'm trying to spread out my cat of the week to make it more like full. It's still okay. it's still more interesting than Lost Hills. <laughs> it is. And Kevin, you would love the miniature pony. You would be oh, like, I so love a intimate. tiny pony. I'm coming out for a walk so I can see that tiny pony. All right, Laura Bricker. Laura Bricker, if folks want to follow you on Twitter so they can see photos of this tiny pony, which you are definitely going to be posting there, how can they find you on Twitter? 
Uh, they can find me at Laura Bricker. And Toby Ball, folks want to tweet to you so they can see your cold remedies that you are going to be posting to help Laura Bricker out. How can they find you on Twitter? Are we still taping? Yes. Oh, um, yeah, uh, at Toby Ball and H. <laughs> and Kevin Flynn, if folks want to reach out to you to find out what you think happened in those 47 episodes of Lost Hills, how can they find you on Twitter? I'm at Kevin P. Flynn. And if you want to follow me on Twitter or Instagram, you can find me at Reb Lavoy. You can also follow the show on Twitter at Crime Writers On. And I encourage you to join our amazing community and our official Crime Writers On Facebook discussion group. Just search for us on Facebook and join our group. We'll let you in if you know even one answer to any of the questions. Support the show at patreon.com slash partners in crime media. You'll get the Crime Writers On After Show, Married with Podcast, Laura Bricker's Leave It to Bricker Podcast, and Toby Ball's Deep Dive Book Club Podcasts. Our theme song was composed and performed by Ty Gibbons. Our line editor is the handsome and patient Olivia Burdett. The executive producer of this program is Kevin Flynn. This show was recorded in the yoga loft above the bodega in Bay St. Louis, Mississippi studio, otherwise known as Studio C, the closet in our New Hampshire basement where we have our naked hot tub parties with all of our weird neighbors. I'm Winnie the Pooing It. On behalf of all the crime writers, thanks so much for listening. We will catch you later. later. Kevin's mom just sent him a message saying, can you explain to me what a meme is? And he's trying to do it quickly before we record this podcast. Yeah, that's... And, he's, and, he's, and he wants to know why I'm impatient about that. I'm not the host. Yeah. I can certainly do Yeah, you've got plenty of time. I've got time. <laughs> I spent all day writing the script. I mean, what, what more do you want me to do? Partners in Crime Media. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home.